This is an MPB Think Radio podcast. To hear previous shows, visit mpbonline.org or download the MPB Public Radio app to listen on your iPhone or Android phone on demand. Hi, I'm Dr. Jimmy Stewart, professor of internal medicine and pediatrics at the University of Mississippi Medical Center. On the original Southern Remedy, we answer questions about all aspects of your health and share some of the latest medical information in the news. You can listen to the show on Wednesdays at 11 on MPB Think Radio, or you can subscribe to the podcast by searching for Southern Remedy on your preferred podcasting app. Welcome to In Legal Terms from MPB Think Radio, the show all about you and your rights. Our host is Professor Richard Gershon of the University of Mississippi School of Law. I'm Liz Gill. Hello, Professor Gershon. Good morning, Liz. Uh, it's great to uh, be with you this morning. And uh, your Kraken are doing pretty well uh, in the playoffs. So, uh, you know, keep an eye on that. Um, it's hard to believe it's 85 degrees outside and we're still playing hockey. But uh, anyway, it's a good Good morning. I'm, I'm always happier when the days get longer and the weather is warmer. Uh, but today we're uh, going to be we're thrilled to have my, my colleague, Professor Phil Broadhead on the show. Phil is an emeritus, emeritus professor at the law school. And, um, you know, the last time he did this show, we were doing it from the rare books room in the law library. And, uh, you know, a lot has changed. And now we're doing all this on Zoom. And, uh, and so we're, it's great to um Great to have Phil on. Phil, good morning. Would you please uh, uh, tell us a little bit about your background and you know, how you got uh, involved in uh, your life as a public defender and the uh, criminal appeals clinic here at the law school? And absolutely, uh, well, good morning. When I got out of law school in 1981, there's only one thing that I knew I wanted to do, and that was I, I wanted to be in the courtroom. So uh, as things happened, three years later, I was appointed Marion County Public Defender and tried cases down there for 17 years and then moved back to Jackson was appointed uh, Hines County public defender, uh, assistant public defender and tried cases there. And around 2000, uh, the law school got a grant from the department of justice to set up a training program in uh, criminal justice. And uh, I was invited in 2001 to come up here and, uh, create a training program for law students, third-year law students, where they got admitted to limited practice uh, and was able to actually practice for the state supreme court and the court of appeals of Mississippi, in as a you know an actual real lawyer, and before they even graduated law school. So um, we handled about 130 cases through the 17 years I was at the law school. And uh, just had a lot of fun and trained a lot of top students in uh, the ins and outs of, uh, of criminal defense. Well, that was a great program. It was a program the judges loved uh, and really brought a lot of good attention to the law school. And the students would say that was one of the best experiences, if not the best experiences that they had in law school. So we miss you, Phil. We really do. And I hope you're enjoying retirement, but we appreciate you coming out of it at least for today, to be on the show and talk a little bit about um, grand juries. Um, so what, what you know, we talk about juries a lot, but what exactly is a grand jury? 
Well, everybody is familiar with a trial jury that determines guilt or innocence in a case. But uh, a grand jury is called a grand jury because there are uh, usually around 20 people on the jury rather, rather than just the 12 in, on a trial jury. And grand juries are, you have to really go back to the Magna Carta in England to really understand what a grand jury is. Uh, before uh, the people of England demanded uh, their rights before the king, the king could have anybody jail without without charges. Uh, there would be no trial. There would be a sentence issued, and uh, the the person would go to prison without any uh, due process. So in uh, in England, the uh, common law eventually developed a system where a jury of a grand jury in this case of uh, the accused peers would decide whether or not the person would stand trial and not the king. And of course, when the colonies adopted the English form of, of law, uh, most of, of the Eastern states um, have a, a grand jury system where, uh, where a, no person can be brought to trial without uh, the case passing through the grand jury first to determine not only the charges, but who's going to get charged? Yeah, so when, when you talk about, you know, charging, so let's say, um, you know, I'm, I'm under a criminal investigation and I'm taken before the grand jury. You know, so if the grand jury finds that, you know, they, they agree with the charges, does that mean I'm, I'm guilty? No, no. It, it merely means that you, your case will be brought to trial through the indictment process. And, of course, that's the primary function of the grand jury is to decide whether or not an indictment will be issued in, in a particular case or not. So we know. I, I mean, I've been called for jury duty. You know, I know. I, I think Liz says she has been called for jury duty. And, and Phil, I think even you probably have been called for jury duty at some time or at least gotten the, the jury summons. And uh what, what about grand juries? How are they? How are they chosen? Well, the process is exactly the same in every uh, in every jurisdiction. You have uh, a circuit clerk in Mississippi who keeps the voter rolls, and that's where you, if you register to vote, you're probably going to be called for jury duty at some point. So uh, they physically maintain uh, what they call a jury wheel, and it used to be. In the old days, it used to be a real wheel, and they put all the uh, electorate, uh, the registered voters in uh, the wheel and draw names until they got enough jurors for the term. And the first day of term in circuit court, the first duty that the uh, circuit judge will do is impanel a grand jury, and the grand jury serves for six months, and you uh, are... uh, brought on to uh, the, the grand jury service by order of the circuit judge. And once you're impaneled on the, uh, on the uh, grand jury, then you remain uh, a member of the grand jury for six months. In Mississippi, all of the uh, 24 judicial districts in the state have two terms of grand jury per year. So, that, so you see the six months, uh, twice over guarantees that there will be a grand jury in session for the entire year. And you may come for, you know, a week or two and maybe a few days here and a few days there during the 
the whole six months. So it's not like you're in physically on, you know, in the jury room for six months. I love this definition um, that jurors aid in the maintenance of law and order and uphold justice among their fellow citizens. You know, I think each each one of those words is so important to each of us. And I know that if I got something in the mail saying I'd have to commit to six months, I'd think, oh, gosh, how can I get out of that? But if you're talking about 20 people, uh, folks, uh, I hope folks try, don't try to beg off too much. Um, a juror's greatest reward is the knowledge that they have discharged this duty faithfully, honorably, and well, which is certainly what I would hope if someone, if I was involved in the process and I needed a a, a jury to clear my name or, I don't know, put me away if I did something wrong. If you have a question or if you have a story that you would like to share about juries or specifically grand juries, you can send us an email with your questions to legalterms at mpbonline.org. We're discussing grand juries with our guest, retired professor Philip Broadhead, and we are thrilled to have two such distinguished professors from Ole Miss. So if you're interested in attending Ole Miss Law School, I'll give you some details. You're listening to In Legal Terms on MPB Think Radio. Not everybody has a chance to listen to our whole show live. So if you've missed any of our program, you can listen to the show from our website, inlegalterms.mpbonline.org. Our host is Professor Richard Gershon from the University of Mississippi School of Law. I'm Liz Gill. Now, individuals who are interested in applying to the University of Mississippi School of Law might want to listen to our one of our two podcasts that we've done concerning admission. They were broadcast on Tuesday, May 10th, 2022, uh, Law School Admissions, and Tuesday, December 3rd, 2019, Law School. We but today we're talking about the grand jury process, indictments, and more with our guest Philip Broadhead, uh, Professor Emeritus from the University of Mississippi School of Law. Yeah, and, and uh, we do miss Phil here. He did great work here, and uh, we're really happy to have him on the show. And you know, and I, I think um, you know the work of public defenders is you know I think underappreciated in our society, but. You know, when we talk about um, a grand jury, what exactly happens during a grand jury? Just it, would someone be represented by a public defender in a grand jury or do they have to go it alone? Well, everyone is entitled to, you know, a lawyer in, in the grand jury process. And many times uh, an individual will know they are a target of the grand jury. Uh, prosecutors will actually uh, notify the person that they're uh criminal case will be taken up by the grand jury. But most times, there are exceptions to this, of course, but most times uh, the criminal defendant, the person who is the target of the grand jury, will never appear before uh, the grand jury, nor will their attorney have any part in the process of uh, indictment. So I always think about the grand jury, as uh, we were talking about this during the break, is it's almost a mock trial, a practice round in a way, even though it obviously has has some weight to it. 
um, for the prosecutor. The prosecutor gets to run through the evidence and and uh, you know try to see if there's actually a case. Is that a fair assessment? Yes, yes. You know, every police investigation ends with uh, the grand jury. And when the, uh, the, the investigative process is over with, the, grant, the district attorney has to first decide, and this is all a part of prosecutorial discretion, at decide whether or not to even present the case to the grand jury. And then as uh, these uh, charging decisions are made, then uh, the prosecutor will bring witnesses and you know the rules of evidence don't apply in a in a grand jury they can bring all kinds of hearsay and uh evidence that would not be otherwise admissible but you know the main thing the prosecutor is going to be focusing on is whether or not there is enough evidence to take the case first to the grand jury and then if the grand jury does issue a, a true bill uh indictment then uh whether or not the case uh will be uh, prosecuted or not in, uh, in the, the state uh, court. Of course, the grand jury always has the option not to indict. And if there's not enough evidence there, actually their sworn duty is to vote what they call a no true bill. It's so interesting. And so if, if, they, if they vote a no true bill, could a prosecutor say, well, I still disagree with that. I'm going to bring a case anyway. Certainly. I mean, they can present it to a, a subsequent grand jury. They couldn't represent the same case to the grand jury, uh, that same grand jury, but they could certainly uh, do some more investigation in hopes of getting more information that would convince a grand jury uh, to indict. But there is an old saying in, in criminal law that, that a good DA can get a ham sandwich indicted. You know, you mentioned the grand jurors. I think some people are probably maybe a little bit concerned out there if they're listening to the show and they hear that grand juries serve for six months and they're thinking, well, I do have to work. I do have to have kids to take care of or whatever. How often would a grand jury actually meet in that six month period typically? Uh, probably no more than uh, 20 days. Uh, the first two weeks of every term, uh, the, the district attorney presents the new cases to a grand jury in hopes of getting an indictment. And although, you know, the, the juror is impaneled for six months, you probably would have a day here or a day there that you would actually be serving as a grand juror during that six months. It wouldn't be, you know, it wouldn't be every week. Certainly might not even be every month uh, through that six month period. But in, in my experience, I've, I've talked to jurors before, both grand juror and trial jurors, and they, uh, you know, almost to a person say it's it's one of the, the best experiences of their life because they got to see how the process works. Uh, you, you, it may be a temporary inconvenience, and, you know, it, to to begin with, but ultimately, if you serve all the way through and are part of the criminal justice system in that respect. I mean, it guarantees all of our rights when someone is willing to give up uh, some of their time to ensure that a fellow citizen gets a fair shake. I just couldn't agree more with you, Phil. I I know it's, I guess, in popular culture, it's the joke to try to get out of jury duty or something. But I just keep thinking, how would I feel if, you know, if if that was me and uh, would I want uh you know, I want an, an intelligent, would I want a, a reasonable person 
to to be on my jury or would I just want somebody who who couldn't do it and it 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 is I wasn't on a grand jury but I was did have jury one time and it was interesting to actually get to be part of our legal system without the fear of having to go to jail. <laughs> and, Absolutely. Uh, <laughs> but, but you know, you are part of it, and uh, you you get to see, you know, it gives you an idea of, uh, of attorneys and judges, and you have uh, firsthand experience, and then you can go off and tell your family after everything is over, you know, uh, oh, he did a really good job. We should vote for him again for re-election or, <laughs> oh, my gosh, what a what a travesty that was. Uh, we need somebody new. I, I, I feel sad that it's such a joke that folks try to get out of jury duty, uh, which I have gotten out of jury duty before, but it was because I truly wasn't in a position to to serve. But when right. I have served it. It's just been so rewarding. Our guest is Philip Broadhead. He's Professor Emeritus, that means retired, from uh, the University of Mississippi School of Law. And, you know, as we talk about, uh, you know, uh, juries, and I, I agree with you, I think that's how the system works. And we, uh, studies have shown that group group think, I mean, juries usually get right. Don't you agree, Phil? I mean, I think that's, you know, we're talking about trial juries at this point, more likely than, than grand juries, but they usually get it right. Um, yeah, certainly, big... certainly, because it's just an information delivery process, and and you get uh, twelve people who are completely disconnected to a case, don't know anything about it, to logically come to a conclusion of whether or not the person is guilty or innocent on trial. So yeah, it's the process is fascinating. Well, we yeah, have think, uh... a caller that we'd like to get to. Let's talk to Sarah from Pontotoc. Sarah, thanks so much for calling into in legal terms today. What's your comment or question? Um, oh, good morning. Uh, good morning, uh, Professor Gerson. Um, and uh, I did not, um, uh, I am, uh, I just graduated from the law school last year and currently a practicing attorney. And um, I, I would say that my, during my externship last year, I worked with the DA's office and I was able to, uh, to present cases at grand juries. Um, and I think, uh, Professor, you're right that 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 experience that I had um, doing that externship with the with the DA's office probably one of my most rewarding experiences of law school and and that prepared me the most um, and and I and I have a quick comment about the the serving and about the power of grand jury about about serving uh, I I worked in a uh, an area that had four counties one county had a little you know a little more population. And grand jurors would serve uh, a week. We would, we had enough cases to present for a week. And there was an adjoining county with less population. And those grand jurors would serve one day of a trial term, um, for or one day of a grand jury term. Um, and the, the interesting thing about that county with the less population, um, they somehow were able to form a community and realized that they had the power of a grand jury. And there was one time when the DA showed up. This was before uh, I got to the office. But one time that the DA showed up to present cases and the grand jury uh, and the community um, uh, demonstrated their annoyance, if you will, with the DA's office. 
and they didn't uh, indict anybody. They said, <laughs> we, we don't like your, your policies. There were zero indictments. Um, and, and, the, and that's the power that that, you know, that community and grand jury was able to have. And I think that goes back to what you're saying about, you know, English common law and being able to have that, that power against the state. Great point. Sarah, it's always great to, to hear from you. I hope you're doing well. Thank you, Sarah. We appreciate well. yeah. you calling in today. <laughs> yes, I enjoy the show. Thank you. We also have a call from Gwen in Holly Springs. Gwen, we're glad you've called in today. Our guest is a retired Professor Philip Broadhead, and we're talking about juries and grand juries. What's your comment or question? Well, I really wanted to know about um, small claims court. Does Mississippi have that, and what is considered a small claim, and uh, where do you go, and does it cost anything to make a Small, go to small claims court. Well, Professor Gershon, I guess we don't have any uh, uh, juries with small claims courts. But uh, what? Where would someone go in um, to file that in Mississippi? Well, I'm, I'm in a uh, yeah. One is uh, the justice court is one place. But uh, Phil, did you have any experience with with small claims as a, uh, a on, only only? Only peripherally, I mean, it, it, you uh, touched on the, the fact that Justice Court is actually the, and it's not called that, but it's the small claims court. I mean, any uh, claim that a person would have, they could contact their local justice court, and I'm sure they could get some guidance. But they, as you say, they don't they don't deal with juries. Oh, and we did have a show on justice courts. I did not nimble with my fingers, but we'll get that information. You're listening to In Legal Terms on MPB Think Radio. Professor Richard Gershon is our expert host. I'm Liz Gill. Hey, we do hope you subscribe to our podcast, or you can find MPB Think Radio recordings on the website mpbonline.org slash radio. We just had a caller who was asking about justice court, and it just so happens we had a justice court judge on In Legal Terms on November 8th, 2022. So, Gwen, if you're still listening, go back and listen to that November 8th, 2022 justice court podcast. We are talking today about the grand jury process with our guest, Philip Broadhead, Professor Emeritus at the University of Mississippi School of Law. And after listening to this show, you just want to know all more, more, more about uh, grand juries. We also talked about them on our September 20th, 2022 podcast. You can find that link in the podcast information for this show. We do have a call. This is Dave from New Orleans. Dave, we're so glad you've called in to In Legal Terms today. What is your comment or question? Good morning. Good morning. Okay, my name is Dave. About 25, 20 to 25 years ago, I served on a federal grand jury down in New Orleans. I uh, what, what happened was, about 200 of us by call. We're all sitting in the jury selection room with the judge, and they went through their lottery, and they selected 
20 of us, or maybe it was 25, something like that, to serve on the federal grand jury, and there were 20 active members, and there were the, the rest of them that were impaneled were inactive members, but required to show uh, in the event something happened where one of the grand jurors. We were asked to serve one day a week uh, for six months. Uh, and it, our day was Thursday. And so I would drive from the North Shore down to New Orleans on Thursdays and uh, attend the grand jury meetings. In the meantime, the assistant district attorneys would present their cases. We might see two, three, five cases uh, per day and they wouldn't have everything lined up for uh, a complete case in one day because they would present to us evidence uh, that they would uh, that they would eventually present in court. The standard for what we were supposed to vote on at the end of the all the uh, presentations by the assistant district attorneys is: is there probable cause for this person to be? Uh, uh, to be seriously seriously charged and taken to court. The, the uh, standard for uh, going to court is beyond a reasonable doubt, but ours was probable cause. Well, we were doing pretty good as a grand jury, and what they did is they impaneled us for another six months. Uh, then what happened is people started losing interest in, in dropping out so they wouldn't have enough people for a quorum. So they finally, I don't know, disempaneled us <laughs> after a year. I ended up being the grand jury foreman and listened to the presentations, all of them, and I had to personally sign the indictments. Oh, was that a thrill to get uh, to, to see the system in action. Yes, I was, I was an engineer working for a major company at the time, and uh, they supported my effort. They said, just get your work done. And so I would work an extra day on the weekends or most of the time to uh, stay caught up with what needed to be done. It was a thrill. In the time I was there, uh, the, the federal district attorney uh, presented complete parts of 88 cases. Their preparation and their attention to detail convinced us on the grand jury that there was a reasonable doubt the the person had committed that crime whether it was drugs or murder or uh, or embezzlement things like that all 88 times we uh, sent the case we indicted the person and sent the person to the Bennett jury for sent the person to trial. So I got to sign 88 indictments over the course of that year. And that's what I wanted to present you. It was great. <laughs> Thank you, Dave. Oh, my goodness. What an experience uh, that was. And, yeah, I think a year was probably too long. I think, um, as our guest, uh, Professor Philip Broadhead, had said, uh, six months is, is, the, is the regular. But I guess you get punished if you do too good of a job. Thank you, Dave. We appreciate your your calling in uh professor gershon professor broadhead do you have a a comment about dave's story well again you know most jurors that i've talked with 
you know, at the end of the, the process was just, you know, thrilled with uh, the opportunity to actually participate in the process. And they call it jury duty for a reason. I mean, it's a civic duty. And you're, you're doing it to ensure the rights of all individuals in the United States. I mean, it's, it's, it's a privilege to, to serve on a grand jury or a petty jury. And it's, it's important, too. And, and, uh, and so, yeah, we really appreciate Dave's service on that jury. And, um, you know, we also had an email question. Um, so is it pretty common? Let's say I get I'm indicted and I and I find out there, there's an indictment. So for, can I plea at that point or is it too late? Oh, no, no. The the indictment is just the beginning of the process. The the next thing that happens when the case is actually sent to the trial uh, uh, court is the person is arraigned. That is, the charge is read to them and they plead guilty or not guilty. And, you know, that, that's that's the next, very next step in the process. Yeah, so now could could a prosecutor decide, even though they got an indictment, that they weren't going to bring a case? Of course, that's uh, the whole uh, uh, power of prosecutorial discretion. Uh, even if a person is indicted, uh, that person may plead to a lesser charge. They may mm-hmm. not plead to anything. Uh, you know, it, it may be uh, a situation where, uh, new evidence is discovered after indictment that uh, absolutely exonerates the person or at least puts the DA in the position of having to decide whether or not they want to actually try the case with this additional information uh, coming into evidence. And so, you know, let's talk about the you know, grand juries. You know, you don't hear a lot about them. Uh, you don't hear yeah. anything about them because <laughs> they meet in secret. I mean, so talk about, by, talk my statute, there is actually uh, fines and penalties for jurors who talk about what happens in the grand jury room. Well, that, that's now that's interesting. So, you you know, you, you see the press coming into trials and a lot of times, especially, you know, uh, more, most famously, probably the, the O.J. Simpson trial. We all watched uh, riveted as we as we had that trial. And then late, most recently, uh, you know, uh, Johnny Depp uh, and uh, and Amber Heard. I think we were watching the, at least the, the YouTube videos every afternoon to see what, what happened in that case because it was so riveting. But would you? So you wouldn't see the press going into a grand jury? Oh, absolutely not. It's it's only the uh, grand jurors and the prosecutors, uh, and of course, prosecution brings witnesses, usually uh, people involved with the investigatory process. But uh, but no, you're you're uh, not. You know, the grand jury. Uh, is actually provided for in the Fifth Amendment of uh, the Constitution of the United States. And, of course, no one can be compelled to give evidence against themselves uh, in, in that way. So if you actually appear before the grand jury, you either have to waive your right, all of your rights to testify before the grand jury, or you uh, would receive some type of immunity in exchange for your testimony. So we, we, we hear about that immunity. Um uh, how how would that, have you ever uh, worked with somebody who had immunity? Uh, yeah, yeah. Uh, but the the more compelling story that I have is I had a, a client that was indicted for murder, and I knew she had a imperfect self defense case, and so I made the decision to waive all her rights and put her in front of the grand jury. And I sat outside that grand jury room, and she came out, and the grand jury no billed the case. They they heard the case and decided that she did act in self defense. That's that, now that that is compelling. I mean, so you know that uh, I, I, know, I know this is not the the, the topic we're, we're covering, but 
self-defense. So are you as a uh, public defender, did you have to prove self-defense as an affirmative defense or was it yes. something that? Yes. No, uh, self-defense is, a, is an affirmative defense. You raise it uh, before trial and then during trial, you uh, present evidence in hope of getting the judge to instruct the jury on the law of self-defense. Well, so I am uh, enjoying this so much, and we're so glad that we've had so many callers. Thank you for being part of In Legal Terms. Hey, if you've missed any of our program, don't worry. You can listen to the whole show on the MPB Think Radio YouTube channel. I love being able to see the closed captioning where you could read YouTube uh, if you needed to, if you're in a position where you can't listen to things. It's also available on the MPB Public Media app as our local shows. Our host is Professor Richard Gershon from the University of Mississippi School of Law. Don't forget, at 11 a.m. Central on Tuesdays, following the over-the-air broadcast, you can hear Southern Remedies, Relatively Speaking, with Dr. Susan Buttress on MPB Think Radio. Okay, so if this has inspired you to uh, accept jury duty, or maybe it's inspired you to go to law school, there are six steps in the application process at the University of Mississippi School of Law. Step one, take the LSAT and register with LSAC's Credential Assembly Service. Two, submit your application through the LSAT website. Three, submit a personal statement. Four, submit letters of recommendation. Five, submit an application fee. And six, submit residency form for establishing that in-state Mississippi residency for tuition purposes. We are talking today with uh, Professor Broadhead, who was the professor emeritus from the University of Mississippi School of Law. We've been discussing juries, and we do have a call and a couple of emails. Let's go to Craig in Biloxi. Craig, we're so glad you've called into In Legal Terms today. What's your comment or question? Okay, uh, I have a question. Which cases go before the grand jury, like does every... Does every criminal indictment have to go before the grand jury? And does the is, is the district attorney required to present all the evidence? And are there ethical uh, ramifications for if he does not do that? Well, all uh, serious felony cases have to be presented uh, to a grand jury in order to be charged through, through the indictment process, and that protects our rights not to be just willy-nilly charged with a very serious crime, you know, by, uh, you know, whatever charging uh, uh, authority there is. But to your question about the ethical duty of a prosecutor, exculpatory evidence or evidence that tends to show that a person did not do what they're accused of, uh, there is an obligation at trial for the district attorney to turn over that sort of information uh, to the defense in discovery. Uh, the prosecutor is under no ethical duty. There are some exceptions. I've read some federal cases that uh, that basically void uh, uh, an indictment where uh, exculpatory evidence was not presented. But the, a part of prosecutorial discretion is to decide what information they want to give to the grand jury in order to get an indictment. But if they leave some, you know, very pertinent information out. There's another old saying in criminal uh, uh, 
criminal law that if uh, the prosecutor lets a dog out of the grand jury, he has to follow that dog into the courtroom. And there is no prosecutor who wants to try a case with the facts stacked against them. Okay, that answers my question. Thank you, Craig. We appreciate you. I love these pearls of wisdom. It it makes me feel very uh, uh, Southern. You're doing a, a great job, uh, <laughs> Professor Broadhead. Uh, we did have a email question. This is from a listener in Columbus, and I'm going to read it, and then you can tell me what it means because I don't even know what this means. How does Batson v. Kentucky and related jurisprudence affect or not the system's ability to guarantee representative grand juries and pettit juries, and how representative is the typical jury in Mississippi? Well, the, the case of Batson versus Kentucky uh, came out of the United States Supreme Court about 25 years ago, and basically the point of Batson is that uh, a, a defendant is entitled to have their case presented in court during a trial to a jury of their peers, if all African-American jurors are kicked off the jury before uh, the jury selection process is, is takes place, then that's not a, that's not a fair cross section of the community. And uh, the case can be reversed on those grounds alone, but it has nothing to do with the grand jury. Grand jury uh, are, are selected in random from voter rolls. You know, like if, if they need, uh, 25 jurors, then they'll uh, put a formula into their computer and the computer will spit out uh, at random uh, the names of uh, electors in that county. And that's the process by which the grand jury is impaneled. So Batson does not apply to uh, grand juries. And that, and that differs because with a, a regular jury, a trial jury, you as an attorney would have the ability to exclude certain jurors and so that's why that's why Batson uh, would be important in that case. And the prosecution, you know, has the power to exclude uh, jurors. Exactly. Exactly. So we had we had one. Let's do one more question. We'll see if if our guest, um, uh, Professor Broadhead, is able to answer this. Someone emailed, I have a cousin who's a convicted felon, which is a good person. He got in trouble once in his life in his 20s, but he's in his 40s now and never been in trouble again. He was excited because he got selected for jury duty for the first time in his life. But I, the listener thought if you were a convicted felon that you weren't allowed to be able to serve for jury duty. Is How does that happen? That is correct. Okay. That is correct. Under the statute, uh, the uh, qualifications of a juror are set out, and if you're convicted of a serious crime, then you're not eligible to become a juror grand jury or otherwise okay i mean that's that's interesting and i mean i guess you know some states may have different rules about that but uh that you know in mississippi uh, that is an interesting uh, rule but let's talk about grand juries a little bit more in the time that we have left um what other things do grand juries decide besides indictments when when a grand jury is impaneled they have the power to subpoena uh witnesses and documents uh, it's not uncommon for the for the grand jury to physically go to the sheriff's office and tour the jail and go to all the public offices in it within a county and uh, they are allowed to examine books and that's all in a process to issue a grand jury report at the end of the six months 
as to their findings about different various county uh, departments. And uh, oftentimes jurors will, uh, you know, not only decide indictments, but they'll decide whether or not uh, to recommend that a certain uh, elected official be investigated as a result of their investigation. Yeah, I was going to ask about that. So that, you know, how would how would that work? I mean, would uh, if they find that a, a public official should be investigated, what would that process be at that point? Well, it would be in the, re the report at the end of the six months, the, the report goes to the district attorney's office. And if they recommend that a certain county official be investigated, then that's in the report. The report is secret, of course, because all of the until an indictment is actually filed with the circuit clerk, uh, there, it, there is no public knowledge about the uh, grand jurors' uh, uh, actions and that sort of thing during uh, the dependency of, of the grand jury. That no one knows what goes on except the, the uh, fifteen to twenty-five people in the grand jury room and the prosecutor. Do you, uh, can you maybe enlighten us as to why that's such a private process? Well, uh, you know, it, it's by statute. I mean, the, the statute is very clear that uh, the uh, the work of the grand jury, uh, it, there's no court reporter. Uh, there's there's no public access to the information that the grand jury is uh, is working on at the time. But at the end of the six months and the grand jury is is discharged, then all that information becomes public. Has there been any change in the last 10, 40, 100 years in how grand juries work? Not in Mississippi. The grand jury, the, the, the uh, uh, first constitution in 1839, I think it was, uh, that it has almost verbatim the same uh, rights for individuals to be uh, brought before a grand jury before they can be brought into a courtroom to answer charges. And it's so basically, no, we, we can actually go back to the Magna Carta. It, there's been some some changes since the Magna Carta, but, you know, not many. And it's all due to uh, red, who was registered to vote, which I will remind folks who, for some reason, haven't driven down their street and haven't seen all of the political signs. This is an election year. So if uh, if you want to be a participant, if you don't get to be in a jury, we can't help you be in a jury. But if you want to be a participant in our uh, governance and our legal system, then uh, you need to register to vote. Do it soon so you'll be able to vote in, in primaries and for all our statewide and municipal and county races that are coming on right now. Oh, my gosh. Professor uh, Broadhead, we are so thankful that you were able to take time out of your busy retirement. Uh, we are so glad that you were able to join us today. Thank you very much. My pleasure. Thank you. We're so glad that you have been listening with us. Our team is Abram Nanny and Jay White uh, for In Legal Terms. For Professor Richard Gershon, who hosts from the University of Mississippi School of Law, I'm Liz Gill. We do hope that you'll join us next Tuesday at 10 a.m. Central for In Legal Terms on MPB Think Radio. This is an MPB Think Radio podcast. To hear previous shows, visit mpbonline.org or download the MPB Public Radio app to listen on your iPhone or Android phone on demand.